Welcome to Melly, a conversation on St. Martin history by Jonathan Van Arneman, Kyla Brown, Ralph Cantal, and Steffi Gomes. Come hear the Melly and share the Melly. You today, um, of course, uh, our last topic was on the border, um, basically on the history of the border and so forth. And we decided, of course, in light of what is currently happening, that it warrants another discussion. Um, right now, presently, you know, there is a, I guess you can say, a protest that is currently taking place at the border monument, the one located in um, between Colby and Bellevue. And that is an initiative that, you know, was started and overall, this is not the first time that this has happened. And for us, you know, as, as, as young um, St. Martiners, we wanted to give another take on different elements and events that surrounds our border, the, the, the idea of one island, one people. And so before I go ahead and continue, I guess I'll let each of you say a little something to the people. Morning, radio listeners. Um, we have a Great conversation for you guys today. So I hope you all also ask some questions on Facebook so we can interact with you as we go more into the topic of the border. You guys said everything. Um, we couldn't avoid the, the subjects because it's, it was so obvious. We tried to prepare something else, but uh, we, we knew we had more to say about the, the border and uh, the context uh well was fitted to to deliver the rest of the conversation so i hope uh, you'll enjoy it you'll interact with us uh and with this new information that we want to bring forward okay yeah and the other thing i i just wanted to give a little disclaimer you know um given that uh we are not professionals in law or policy or treaties or any of those things um, we are young professionals in our own regard, and so all of the research that we're doing is using our background and our knowledge and our skills, um, but some of this stuff is really not easy to find and it's not easy to decipher. Um, and so if you are a professional in that area or if you work in that area, you'd like to comment and you'd like to um, maybe uh, do an interview with us or something like that to provide more light on the subject of the border uh, because it is complex. Um, we definitely welcome that. Uh, we are in no way trying to posit ourselves as uh, experts on the arena. We're just trying to um, add context and information to the conversation that needs to happen. So well, uh, to go ahead, uh, of course, when we talk about the border, um, the Treaty of Concordia is basically the number one point um, of reference. And so on that note, passing on the baton to Miss Steffi. Go ahead. Thank you. So um, I basically wanted to um, give a little bit of elements on the legal framework of the, mm -hmm. the treaty. So um, a lot of people, um, I, I think that um, my, my point of view is that the treaty is not enough, it's obsolete, but um, it's still something. And I'm saying that because sometimes I feel like uh, we're talking about the treaty like like we're talking about a fun fact, you know, like we're talking mm -hmm. like, you know, uh, one episode ago, we talked about the fact that uh, the, the partition of the island was a myth. But the treaty is not a myth. It is real. <laughs> and um, right. um, 
it hasn't been found in some archives, but we do have uh, um, an example that has reached our time. So we know it existed, it, it, we know it was made, and it's still a, a, um, it, it's still a text. Um, why am I saying that? I'm saying that because um, in the French system, our law is based on texts. So we are all, always looking for a text where it's written that this is the way it functions. And um, people say sometimes that this text, uh, like, it doesn't matter and that um, like, it's not strong enough. However, why it was signed in 1648 and then violated from 1648 until the 1800s because of the, the wars between the, the colonial uh, powers? Mm -hmm. uh, we, we mentioned that once it was all French, all English, all, uh, all Dutch. Uh, right. From the 1800s, there was a permanent uh, a state, state of things. So um, in 1839, there was a convention between, the, the, between France and Holland that confirmed uh, the, the, amicable, the amicable relationship between both sides on the island. So it means that they saw that something existed 200 years prior, and they said, hey, let's let's update this let's confirm that this is still how we want to work so mm -hmm. it, for me it's a bit of a proof that it exists and also even today with the treaties of, on police cooperation i i couldn't get my hand on the treaty of uh, 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 on the the agreement of police cooperation but in the explanation that our then deputy uh well mp in the french parliament gives he um he establishes that uh, the Treaty of Concordia is uh, like the fundamental uh, act of creation of St. Martin. So um, when I hear sometimes people say that, yeah, uh, like the treaty is, is something like for us, but like when you go to, to France or to Holland, they don't know why it says it doesn't exist, it doesn't hold no strength. For me, it's, it's too easy of, a, of an excuse. I, I, I don't buy it, you know. They know it exists and for me, it has strength. Now, um, it's not enough, but even uh, even if uh, the treaty didn't, didn't exist, let's imagine we, we, we completely lost the treaty, we don't know what was written in the treaty. You still have uh, how the people behave on the island. You still see that people cross, well, go from one territory uh, to another without any control. So when the French state uh, during uh, the well, from the collectivity era in 2007, begins being stronger on the island, more present on the island. They cannot negate the custom, and custom mm -hmm. is a source of international law. Because um, when you go in other countries where written law is not as important, that could be like uh, uh, African or Asian countries that didn't uh, that, that were colonized, but it could also be uh, the United Kingdom, which common law is not always written. Okay, you have custom that plays a role, and we cannot say that that our behavior um, is just an anecdote or is just um, interesting to us for our culture. I think we have to value our customs and our way of acting. And understand that it can it can hold um, legally. So I think that's the point I wanted to make. To to make uh, that the the treaty is not uh, nothing, 
but my second part is that it's not enough. Uh, I'm not going to say anything that is revolutionary or that, uh, that is a brand new idea that, that, that nobody has thought of. We need cooperation. Mm -hmm. And when I say cooperation, mm -hmm. I mean not only for police coordination, but in all aspects. And of course, our case is very, is very unique, but we are not the only, well, I'm talking as a French person, let's say, we are not the only French people who live close to a border and who cross every day to work, etc. So it's notably the case uh, in Luxembourg, well, between Luxembourg and the French region of Moselle. So mm -hmm. they are called the Frontaliers, the people from Moselle who, who, who live, yes who, he, yes, who live in Moselle but work uh, in Luxembourg. They have a status that uh, was born from uh, um, a, a European regulation or rather they had a situation and the EU decided to put uh, a regulation so that they could enforce it and make it like regalize the, the, the situation. So this means mm -hmm. that in a regulation, not only for Luxembourg and, or, and Moselle, but only also for other parts of the European Union where you have the situation of people living in a country and working in another one, you have a treaty that you have a, a regulation that says, okay, this is where you're going to pay your taxes. This is where you're going to contribute to social security. Uh, this is where you're going to contribute to your, your retirement fund, etc. So we were not uh, going from nowhere. And of course you have adaptation that has to be made, but they already had this, this situation of people living somewhere and experiencing another, another territory. And so solutions can be made. We cannot just say, oh, that's, that's how it's done. So that's how, what we have to comply to and, and farewell to, to the friendly island or whatever, you know, we, we, there's room for improvement. Uh, and of course, I know I, I'm saying that it, this is not revolutionary because a lot of people are, are, have thought of it. A lot of people have thought of it as well. So there's the Unity Congress that uh, current president uh, Daniel Gibbs is pushing forward, which would be a Congress with, with both uh, with governments of both uh, both parts of the island, and uh, there are also uh, European structures that would allow us to work uh, together. So, some uh, something like a European Grouping for Territorial Cooperation uh, (EGTC) is a structure that is, that exists and that would allow that that type of cooperation. It's not a brand new idea. They already made plans to work on it, but it's not it's not moving forward. That was my point. The treaty is not the the, the treaty has strength, but it's not enough. Mm. Wow, I like that. It's that the treaty has strength, but it's not enough. Um, and one of the things uh, also that you said, Steffi, um, that comes to mind based on what I'm about to share was how it not being enough in terms of we see where the border, well, my question more so is how vital is a border to our livelihoods? Because some say, you know, it, it has its cultural relevance. Some, for some, it might simply be a matter of economics. And then um, probably in the case of more so France and Holland, uh, geopolitical reason. And one of the things that came to mind while I, you know, while I went through different articles and so forth, was even um, I remember one mem one member of parliament um, who, let's uh, say, went on a tirade speaking about the cost of living on both sides of the island, um, and and referring to the the, the bread basket and how much money, uh, how much you can get your money's worth 
let's say from $100, either on the Dutch side or Southern or the Northern side of the island. And so even in a case like that, um, perfect example, just before um, the border was closed um, last week, Friday, we saw where there was a huge rush of traffic because people were going to a particular supermarket because it's known for having, you know, cheaper, uh, cheap, um, lesser prices, not necessarily cheaper products, um, but you know, lesser prices than compared to those on, on this side of the island. And so, I wrote a little something, um, and then I will continue, uh, which is, you know, as far as a border partition is concerned, um, the partition uh, was a matter of goods for the exploitation of the island's resources. Enslaved Africans from both sides. We worked on either side of the island, and we built a community out of the free movement. The partition was for the purpose of the colonizer, to be honest, initially. You know, it was so that, hey, you have some salt pans, I have some salt pans. Your side maybe have, have a, you know, has more flatter land, and, and you have, you know, more, um, uh, more hillsides and so forth. And so um, we want to be able to ensure that Whatever benefit you have from the landscape of your of your of your side of the island, I want to have that too. And in addition, you know that that freedom of movement meant that not only goods, but stories, customs, beliefs, lifestyles, and values are also passed through the border. Because based on human nature, that social factor which is ingrained in a lot of us um, beyond just family ties still exists to this day. And so passage through the border also provided safety and economic benefit. And so um, to touch on something that we lightly discussed um, in the last live or, or merely discussion was the issue of, of Oyster Pond, which I believe was the first time in the 21st century that we saw, let's say, a beef <laughs> between um, both sides of the island. Um, one day, you know, the, uh, basically, um, a business owner and staff members were arrested. Barricades were placed alongside, um, you know, the, the that place of business um, at Oyster Pond. Reason being is because um, the French believe that you know it was illegal and they are trespassing on French domain. Whereas, um, when you look at the backstory, um, how the issue started was the fact that um, Mr. Captain Oliver. Um, he wanted to start a business, and he was told that in order to get a license and, and water rights, he had to go to the third side of the island to get those licenses. And so that, I believe, set the precedence where it was like, okay, basically anything revolving this specific area had to be a matter of or, or, or was in the control of the Dutch. And so, you know, based on that premise, the marina was built up and you know, we know we've known it to be um, flourishing and so forth. But based on that, there was a standoff between both sides, and initiative was started to ensure that you know we could amicably, amicably settle the situation. However, this this actually, um, I think it was a little over a week ago. Um, Article was published, basically stating that yeah, several weeks ago, um, basically stating that you know the negotiations are still ongoing. And the unfortunate part about it is that the business, the business owner of that uh, area now is currently suing St. Martin government and the Dutch state claiming loss of income because um, basically, you know, it, there was supposed to be a settlement or agreement and France and Holland sent a, let's say, a site team to, to both to come down to the island and to, to look at the demarcations, et cetera, and determine, uh, you know, what would be in fairness our 
I guess our property, so to speak, um, that was done and unfortunate and, and uh, report or consensus had what had, had to be shared just earlier this year um, in spring. Unfortunately, due to COVID, it has now been postponed. And so we now see where, you know, um, there's, there's currently a limbo as to whether or not, um, you know, that business can rebuild itself, but there's still no clarity as to whether or not, like, who the property belongs to. But I just want to, but on that note, before I close, I just also want to just read this quick excerpt about the, the real cause of, of the dispute. And according to um, the foreign minister from the Netherlands, Minister Block, he confirmed that the dispute, which is in essence, is about whether the border goes through the middle of the water or along the north shore. And you know, we talk about borders in terms of the land border, but one of the things that also matters too is the the, the water borders. You know, because that partition or was or and every country they determine you know, what is their water space and and beyond even water space, what is their air space? <laughs> you know, so what 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 you know basically what elements belong to me, and and what I found interesting about that was the the actual border monument itself which in the case of the early 90s um the actual border monument you know a proposal was made to move it um from where it was because there was a expansion uh, going on let's say at um the hot uh Plaisance hotel and basically you know um they uh, they wanted to put in place a golf course and i mean it's like come on <laughs> uh, just in the case of um the forts the fort in DV, you know, that land was sold to the hotel. And I guess, you know, that inspired people. And, and one of the reasons I'm saying this is just to to touch on today's lines of event, because that was one of the, the moments where we see people from both sides of the island make a statement, I guess, to de determine and, and emphasize that this is ours. You know, this means something to us. And so if, to, if the idea of even moving the monument would inspire uh, a movement where people from both sides would protest and say, no, we're against this. And, well, the rest is history because the monument has not been moved and it, it still is where it is today. But I think my final conclusion is, is for us to question, I guess, how vital is the border to our livelihood and what, who has the greater say in matters of the border? Is it us, the people who live here, or is it, um, our, uh, you know, France and Holland, or, or is it the... Uh, even the private sector, you know, um, because God, uh, I think an interesting study would be to analyze how much the, the, the worth of the border in terms of how much money, you know, passes through the border, um, let's say probably in the last five years, last 10 years, or even in a year. And and so on that note, I guess we can have a further discussion afterwards. And Carla, you could go ahead. And uh, I think I'm now on your territory. So go ahead. So yeah, of course, there's a bit of overlap <laughs> between what Ralph just said and what I'm about to talk about. And it's this uh, idea that Steffi actually put or contextualized into very beautiful words for us, uh, which was that we have an invisible border that has a cultural meaning but an economic purpose. And when we're looking at, for example, now with the border closed, if we look at what is allowed to continue um, despite this border closure. So we have the waiver uh, for, because right now, I mean, I don't know, maybe for persons tuning in as well, um, 
you have free movement from French side to Dutch side, but you do not have free movement from Dutch side to French side at the moment as of July 31st at noon. Uh, but moving from the Dutch side to the French side, you have a waiver. Um, and the reasons you can move under the waiver are, of course, for the use of boats, airports, if you're traveling through an airport on the other side of the island um, or, or coming in, or for extreme medical purposes, or if you are a person that lives on one side of the island but works on the other side of the island and your work is not possible to do from home. And through this, I think that we've seen over the past few days that the majority of movement across this border then remains within these economic reasons. And so we started to question, and I started to ask myself as well, we have this one island, one people, one destiny model, and we very much look at it as a cultural identity, whereas we're seeing more and more that actually it has a very large economic um, uh, like foundation. Uh, and so I'd like to go back to an idea that I first discussed uh, in our last episode on borders, which is this idea that borders are projects that are inextricably linked to power and they don't exist on their own and they're reinforced by multiple exercises done by institutions and governments. And today, as we're focusing on the closure of the border due to COVID, um, I would like to argue that... Um, let me backtrack. So with COVID, <laughs> we see the division of the island uh, and we're thinking now that, you know, they are implementing a division. But I'd like to argue that this division was always there and we have institutions that really support this division. And it's really uh, people and family ties that we're seeing that really help to dissolve uh, this border and make it kind of invisible. But actually all the institutions that we've created and that we've seen created dating back to the Treaty of Concordia, have actually called to existence this division. Um, and so we see that through a variety of things. Uh, so that's, for example, our education system. They don't teach a history or social studies that speaks of one island, one people. They're talking about two distinct countries. Why do they even mention St. Martin at all within these education systems is another topic, but it is speaking about a clear division of people. We have media institutions that are largely based on one side, for example, largely reporting about the news on one side. And so what you see there is basically you have the news of one side of the island and uh, you would see the other side having news more as like the peripheral issues that are happening, but not necessarily, you know, a media institution that constructs the entire island as one space. Uh, and of course, we have our governing bodies, which of course are creating policies and implementing policies only on their respective sides of the island. So you have these various huge institutions uh, that then solidify this division and don't necessarily do enough effort to try to create this idea of one island, one people. So then as Ralph was talking about, then you start to think, where does this idea come from? Because if we go back to the Treaty of Concordia, we see that from the very beginning, this uh, uh, soft border, let's say, was more about economic advantage and not about creating one people. But I mean, as Ralph already so perfectly said, you know, what do you have when you, you're sharing an economic space? You have people uh, that are being forced to work on opposite sides of the island. They're creating relationships, they're creating family ties, 
And from there, within a shared economic zone, you have this cultural effect, which is the creating of people coming together, creating relationships, uh, and moving forward. Um, yes, and so then if we fast forward to the latter half of the 1900s, we see that we then have now created a common population that is serving labor uh, needs of both sides of the island. And, I mean, we can think of variety of huge institutions, even uh, let's say like if we take Malibé, we all know that Malibé was really manned by people from all over the entire island coming together. It, it didn't matter what side you lived on, reside from, came from, you were working together uh, in Malibé. And the way that those institutions, you know, help to uh, uh, show the fact that we're sharing a labor force. And that continues through so many examples uh, today, of course. And so throughout the years, I was thinking, you know, I've heard various persons, various political figures uh, call attention to the fact that we're losing this oneness. And I think that we can, you know, date it back to this exact rise in tourism, uh, the tourism industry. You see so many people moving to the island, but then again, we don't have institutions that these people are entering that tells them, you know, you're coming to a shared cultural space. Um, and so what you have is then a growing population in which the numbers of people moving to the island are largely outgrowing this initial shared common population. So that's exactly when you see, like um, we were talking about in the last episode, that you need these institutions that carry forward these stories, these histories that unite us all. Um, and so um, I started to think more about the multiple calls uh, being made by persons, myself included, about the fact that we need institutions that speak to this cultural unity. Um, and in thinking over this week, in the past week since we've been discussing that we have to talk about the border, um, I'm always drawn myself towards this idea of creating institutions, right? But then I was suddenly reminded of the words of the Caribbean author, Jamaica Kincaid, uh, in her book, A Small Place. And it says, but let me just tell you something about ministers of culture. In places where there's a minister of culture, it means there is no culture. For have you ever heard of any culture springing up under the umbrella of a minister of culture? And so she's really, uh, in her book, she's talking about Antigua, but she's really drawing light to the fact that generally you see this call for preservation, right? And it's this call for preservation because you see that you're losing the thing that you're trying to preserve. And so you try to institutionalize it. And through institutionalizing it, you hope to formalize and solidify it. Um, and so in my own haste to think of, of institutions and you know what can we do to make sure that this oneness continues, um, I thought about the fact that you know throughout history we've always, uh, as a people, also largely relied on this informal network, uh, and it also calls agency to who we are as individuals and how we can act to help preserve this oneness. And so, in quoting the words of Jamaica Kincaid, I hope to not say that there's no hope and we don't need institutions. But it's more to emphasize our role as individuals within civil society, within civil society to uh, continue this informal nature of maintaining cultural ties, building in. If we want to see something maintained, it's something that we have to act, actively support and live through. Uh, and it's something that we as a people have to do. And I think a lot of times we, we complain, we point a finger at government, and everything is supposed to come from government, 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 right? and they're not doing enough to preserve, they're not doing enough to do this. Um, but in this one sense, 
uh, and it being about cultural unity and the way that we have always experienced it as a people, I think that the buck really falls on us also as just as ordinary individuals to make sure that this is preserved. Well said. <laughs> Thank you, Carla. Um, and well, you mentioned, I'm glad you mentioned that um, Jamaica Kincaid book, A Small Place. Um, that surely is a book, you know, that lights a fire in your brain, basically, when it comes to reviewing your society as a, a tourism-based island, especially. Um, so, Jonathan, uh, you, could, you could go ahead and, and share uh, what you prepared. Yeah. Um, so, I think this is my first time going last. So, it's actually really nice to, like, listen to, to what everyone has to say, because you guys all speak so beautifully. Um, <laughs> and so I kind of want to uh, bring it full circle. So, I mean, we started out with uh, talking about the Treaty of Concordia. And so now I want to talk about another treaty that was signed between the French and the Dutch, which is the Franco-Dutch Treaty. Um, and this is a modern day treaty. It was actually signed in 1994. Um, and the full name of the treaty is the Treaty Between the Kingdom of the Netherlands and the French Republic on the control of persons entering St. Martin through the airports. Uh, so, I mean, that doesn't really leave any uh, room for doubt as to what this treaty is supposed to do, right? Uh, the French and Dutch territories are pretty much saying that, um, you know, given the different laws on each side of the island, uh, some persons are allowed on one side, but not allowed on the other side. So how do we control this so that, um, you know, the, the people who are coming in uh, are actually allowed to be on both sides of the island? Um, and so it, it's really interesting. So this was this happened in 1994. Um, in 1995, we see there was a huge protest by a group called We for We that was established in 1988. Um, and they pretty much trashed the treaty. Um, they were not in favor of the treaty at all. And so I'm going to go through a couple of points that they raised as to why the treaty was not favorable for the people of St. Martin. Um, so their first issue with the treaty was that uh, European powers were dictating how St. Martin should cooperate. And in the treaty, there's language like territory owned by Holland or France. And so it implies that the St. Martin people have a lack of agency and choice. Um, the second issue that they had was that uh, Holland and France decided the treaty and then they asked St. Martin to ratify it, as opposed to the St. Martin people deciding the treaty and asking Holland and France to ratify it. So that's one of the major differences between the Franco-Dutch treaty and the Treaty of Concordia. Because the Treaty of Concordia, it was French people on St. Martin, Dutch people on St. Martin, they came to the agreement and then they sent it off to the colonial powers to ratify it. Here in the Franco-Dutch treaty, you have the complete opposite. It's very much top down. Um, and so we see that that's one of the big issues with this treaty. Um, they said that the treaty does not protect indigenous people of St. Martin, uh, define indigenous, right? And so here we're very much talking about uh, what Carla was just mentioning as, you know, the people who, who embody the, the, the Treaty of Concordia, who have lived on St. Martin for generations and generations, um, those people are very much being erased, um, erased in terms of uh, they are a minority on St. Martin. Um, and I mean, that's for a number of different reasons that we won't get into right now. Uh, but this treaty very much does not include them or, or think about their point of view. Um, and it also transfers rights from the St. Martin people to European, Dutch, and French people. Um, so basically, this treaty is saying that uh, they want St. Martin to be viewed as uh, Europe European territory 
And so pretty much the same visa laws that apply in France and Holland need to be applied to St. Martin. So what that does is it puts in favor European people uh, coming to St. Martin versus um, the, the so-called risk flights that, that um, they are worried about. So it's pretty much they wanted to restrict the, the rights of 13 Caribbean countries from coming to St. Martin freely um, because they felt like these people were coming to St. Martin and taking advantage of uh, European benefits and European um, territory, essentially. And so it's saying like, St. Martin, you are European, and so you need to act like a European and not like you're Caribbean. So it's, it's taking us away from our Caribbean brothers and sisters and pointing us towards uh, Europe, which is Holland and the, ne uh, the Netherlands and France. Um, and so they use very strong language in their objection to the treaty. They said it was ethnic cleansing or genocide by substitution. Um, <laughs> and so they were really, really upset about this treaty. You know, they, they, um, they caused a, a big ruckus um, in, in parliament. And so I thought it was very interesting because it's a very pan-Caribbean um, movement that was happening. And they were very much in favor of not just St. Martin Dutch and St. Martin French or St. Martin South and St. Martin North, but also um, seeing us as really a Caribbean island as opposed to a European island in the Caribbean, if that makes sense. Um, and so um, they also said that it will make Caribbean integration very hard psychologically um, because St. Martin people will begin to think of themselves as European versus Caribbean. Um, and it's a development process that is crucial for our survival. Um, and so, I mean, they, they go through a number of different reasons why, you know, like this smacks of colonialism and um, we, we shouldn't sign it and we shouldn't ratify it. And it was this huge commotion that happened in 1995, right? And so, um, basically, uh, a very um, interesting tactic that happened was um, the Netherlands and France, they basically did nothing. Um, they let the protest happen. They, they didn't say anything. They didn't ratify it. Um, and in 1999, they postponed the ratification of, uh, they postponed the ratification of the treaty. Uh, the parliament of the kingdom of the Netherlands postponed it so that St. Martin could make their um, position known. But then we see that in 2006, which is, uh, 12 years later, they ratified the treaty. And then in 2007, uh, the treaty entered into force, but without any provision for implementation. So here, um, I think what I really want to draw attention to is time. Um, we for we, to my knowledge, no longer exists. Um, you know, it was, it was popping in, in the late 80s and 90s, and they were very much against this. But um, I feel like Oftentimes we forget that um, colonial powers are very patient. Um, you know, it's like they they can wait until you know um, protests die down, and then it's like when people are not really paying attention, they kind of just slip it in there. You know, and so here we see like it took twelve years, but then after twelve years, the treaty was ratified, um, and then in two thousand seven, it enters into force. Um, two thousand and nine. That's when the first meeting happens to, to develop the steering committee of how this thing is going to work. Um, so again, this is from 1994 and all the way in 2009, that's when the steering committee is being developed. Um, in 2013, that's when you have the first meeting of the steering committee of Dutch and French officials. Um, so this is 
what, um, almost 20, 20 years later, right? 2013. Um, and then in 2016, uh, in January, you have the second meeting of the executive committee. Um, and then in 2016, April, you have the third meeting of the executive committee. And so now fast forward to today, the Franco-Dutch treaty is actually a reality. So what that means is um, French authorities are present at the Princess Juliana International Airport. And uh, whenever there's a risk flight um, or a flight that they deem to be um, like you need extra extra guards uh, in terms of whether or not they can enter the French side, um, they're, they're there, they're present. And Dutch officials are also present at the, the French side airport, L'Esperance. Um, L'Esperance? Did I say that right? Um, I forgot the name of the French airport. Um, <laughs> and so um, one thing that I found very interesting is in this third meeting of the executive committee, um, this was when uh, William Marlin was, was prime minister in 2016. Um, they also discussed military cooperation. They discussed police cooperation. They discussed uh, cooperation in terms of education, health, and social protection. And so the reason I find this treaty interesting is because um, it, one, shows how um, Holland or France are willing to work together in terms of um, guaranteeing their best interest. You know, it's like since Martin is this land that, that is shared by both of them and uh, it is in their best interest to work together to ensure that the people coming to Saint Martin are uh, favorable. Um, and so we see how uh, when something is in favor, um, treaties just pop up, right? <laughs> and so I'm wondering, um, one, like, you know, with this, with this current debate um, of, of whether or not um, Americans should be led into St. Martin because, you know, Americans are allowed on the Dutch side but not allowed on the French side. Um, I'm wondering why this treaty was not uh, invoked, you know? Um, because if the case is that um, you know, the whole point of the treaty is to control who's coming in because some people are allowed on the French side versus some people being allowed on the Dutch side. Um, why is it that Americans then don't really uh, fall into this, this category of, of something that needs to be assessed? Um, and so, I mean, I, I don't, again, know the complete legality of it as to why. I mean, I know this, this isn't why the treaty was... Um, uh, created. It was more created in terms of visa issues, and it was more created in terms of, um, okay, like this person needs a visa to go here, da, da 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 But like in this age of COVID, I'm wondering, like, if we're willing to, you know, work together to, to keep certain uh, demographics out, like why, why was, was this not um, thought of, I guess, is, is a question that I have and that I'm questioning. Um, yeah, it's just the the treaties that Dutch side and French side have together. Um, I feel like sometimes the people of Saint Martin don't even know like where we're supposed to cooperate and where we're not supposed to cooperate. And historically speaking, where have we cooperated and where have we not cooperated? And so when issues of the border come up, it's it's always like. Uh, you, it's it's one land being governed by by two territories and and by by two nations. So it's like okay, of course, like you have to close the border because um, you know you have limited resources. Or uh, but but we're not seeing the different ways in which collaboration was already made possible um, 
because of these treaties, you know, like this, this stuff is not um, being made available to the general public. And as you see, like a treaty that was put into place in 1994 is only now coming into effect uh, more than 20 years later. Um, and so it really raises questions as to, um, you know, like why that is and, and are there um, other things at play that we need to be taking into consideration when, when uh, discussing the, the border closure that, that recently happened. Um, yeah, and so with that, um, I kind of want to open it up to discussion because I feel like I have more questions than answers. Um, <laughs> and so any, any thoughts that you guys can provide on, on this, but also on you know, the topic of just collaboration between um, French and Dutch territories in, in general, you know, like Steffi was saying, um, the the situation between france and luxembourg and you know the the people who who live uh on um, in france but work in luxembourg it's like you have all of these amendments being made for them and so it's like when you have since martin now like why why is it that all of a sudden it's like oh it's two countries we we can't possibly uh work together to to fight this thing um but in other cases it's like perfectly uh, logical and and possible um and then the other thing I wanted to raise is, um, you know, in terms of institutions, um, is this treaty, uh, even though I, I understand completely what we for we were saying originally about the treaty, um, I actually do think the treaty is meant to bring St. Martin South and St. Martin North together, you know? Um, it's at the, the expense of our Caribbean brothers and sisters, right? <laughs> because it's, it's forcing us to come together as a means of exclusion. Um, but it's still forcing us to work together in terms of our border, you know? So it's like, what are the, I guess, the pros of that, you know, that collaboration, that, that um, unity that we have where we're deciding to collectively exclude people, you know? Um, and, and yeah, I mean, my brain is just going <laughs> in terms of really like understanding like the ins and outs of of this treaty or just treaties between French side and Dutch side in general you know it's like I think there's one thing that I would add in one of the questions that you raised um about the Franco-Dutch treaty and if it's the issue that we open our borders to Americans and if Americans are deemed this risk population um why was there not cooperation on this level because of the treaty but I think that it's important to note that the issue is not necessarily that we just open our borders uh, to Americans, right? Because we see that St. Bart's also opened its borders to Americans. And St. Bart's is not, does not have a border closure right now with the front side. Uh, and so it, it really is um, when people are saying it's just because we opened up to our, our borders to Americans, that we opened up our borders to the USA, but also it's uh, a calling towards saying towards the Dutch side, you're not doing it under the right um, conditions, you know, because I think in St. Bart's, it's like if you enter after seven days, you're also retested, which tourists have to pay for to be retested, uh, etc. And so it's also a way of the French side saying, yeah, we're closing our borders to you, Dutch side, because, you know, something's happening over there. You guys aren't controlling it. You're opening your borders, and that's also uncontrolled or not controlled enough to our standards, and so thus we can now close this uh, border that was once invisible. Um, and so I think that sometimes, and that's also my issue in that reading like a lot of the media reports and everything that's happening on the border closures, 
uh, and I mean this whole situation, it's the fact that I feel like across media articles, you also only find like one part of the story. And you find yourself trying to connect things and, you know, we don't have necessarily such uh, uh, thorough forms of, let's say, investigative, investigative journalism. Um, that really show like the complexity of these issues, right? Because I think that we also get like just the peak of it, um, and um, we are also like uh, I don't want to say that we create smoke screens, but we have a lot of smoke screens going on, and we think we're a lot of different people are trying to construct the issue uh, in different ways. And COVID has just brought this new reality to borders everywhere around the world, uh, including ours. And now is when we really see like this idea of misinformation, uh, the non-communication, or not non-communication between our governments, but the absence of like what Steffi was saying that throughout history, we've had certain attempts towards creating like institutions that govern or work on the collaborative governance between both sides, but we haven't seen it come to fruition. Uh, and we now see the need for that, you know, uh, a need for both sides to have some form in which they work together for these exact uh, situations. And um, I would just like to add, um, based on a question you asked on Jonathan, is that for me, unity has to be grassroots. Um, for me, you know, unity shouldn't be a, a sort of a formal uh, arrangement made to, you know, put us together and hold hands. <laughs> um, you know, it, we should determine how we unite and who is also included in the way in which we unite. Um, you are def I do definitely agree with you about the treaty um, of, well, the franco Dutch treaty, where it's like, you know, um, we're, we're being pushed into this uh, a state of um, turning into, turning more into our Europe, European um, influences and so forth, and sort of discarding ourselves from our Caribbean allegiance, or alliance, because you kind of do, for me, you kind of do see that where, um, you know, St. Martin and, and all part of the, of the Caribbean are always linked as the Dutch Caribbean or, you know, the Netherlands Antilles and then the Caribbean, you know, it's like, there's, you have this little pocket of islands that don't, are not necessarily part of, um, regional organizations with, with, um, a strong voice was saying, I do understand that's because we don't uh, control our foreign affairs, but I think it, it's, um, I think it's something worth dismantling because St. Martin itself, the makeup of the island, that's not what it is. Because I'm sure many of us may have a, a neighbor from various um, different islands or, you know, may have, may have simply just gone to school with people from different islands or different countries and so forth. And so um, I think that that unity that we have to establish should um, come from us and not having to wait for uh, another entity or people to, my final point is sometimes having to defy the rules. You know, okay, fine. France is responsible for the French side of foreign affairs. Holland is responsible for, um, you know, our foreign affairs. But at what point do we say, you know, then I guess that's another discussion. I don't know if you want to add anything to that, um, Steffi. And I have one question for you guys because I think we have just about five minutes left. Um, there's a there's a lot to say, you know, um, because unfortunately we are in um. Not in a post-colonial era, you, we are in a neo-colonial era. So as much as I believe that all change should come from the people, especially in societies as ours, where we don't necessarily have organizational, uh, organizational 
capacity to put in place institutions, I think it is our role to push for them because, um, well, we, but we can, we, we only push for things in which we believe, you know, so, uh, so, so at the end of the, of the day, it has to come from us, but we will need uh, others to to act on it, on what we, we will have uh, decided. And if it's not the case, we'll have to wait for one day, maybe, I don't know when, maybe not when I'm alive, independence, you know? So if we want things to be effective uh, from, from the time we're alive, <laughs> we have to recognize that um, our current uh, circumstance uh, comes with negotiating making our voice heard and applying pressure to who doesn't understand our way of doing things. Um, and uh, uh, what Jonathan was saying about the Franco-Dutch treaty about the airport is also very interesting because um, it seems like no, no piece of law, no treaty uh, is strong enough uh, for, for a situation that happens in St. Martin. The Treaty of Concord is not strong enough to, to stop uh, the closing of the border. And the Franco-Dutch Treaty on Airport is not strong enough to, uh, let's say, ban uh, Americans from both sides. So, so what's good then, you know? What, like, are we uh, always gonna, like, create new, new pieces of laws and new institutions and new organization. And then when we are faced with a new solution, with a new problem, with a new situation, uh, the, the answer is always going to be, but this is, this was not created for that. So we can, it cannot apply, etc. There, there's a lot of, um, will that is not put towards, um, respecting our ideal way, way of living. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. So I have a, a question, I guess, to end this on a, a slightly lighter note. <laughs> and that question is, for each of you, uh, what is one of your fondest memories of visiting the other side of the island? Um, for me, I think it would be, um, well, I, I went a lot to the other side, uh, especially as, as a teen, because like teenagers is like, when you become more independent. So it would be uh, going to the Dutch side with uh, some friends, whether it be Saturday uh, spree, like afternoon sprees to, to Phillipsburg to shop, <laughs> or uh, going to the movies and uh, at night and obliging our parents to come pick us from, from, from Megaplex and bring us back to, to the French side. <laughs> yeah. So basically it's going liming on the Dutch side. <laughs> Yes, during teenage years, yeah. That's cool. And beach, beach Sunday as well, because we have a lot of beach on 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 both sides. But we don't know why we want to be. Uh, we we want to go on those from the side where we're not. So. Yeah, that's actually so true because I prefer to go to the beach on the French side. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I definitely say, um, yeah. I mean, whether it's Grand Cas Beach, Fires Bay Beach, like just. I don't know, the beaches on the French side just, just hit differently. Um, and so, <laughs> so I, I really enjoy that. Um, I also have just distinct memories of, you know, like family members visiting and you're taking them around the island and you go visit the forts on the French side or 
uh, when the mall just opened and like you're, you're going into the, the new mall um, on the waterfront. Um, yeah, there's, I, I don't know. I, I also go to the French side a lot. Um, and so it's hard to pin down like a very specific memory, but um, I, I always um, just appreciate how um, beautiful the island is, you know, um, and it's, it's different, but it's still the same, if that makes sense. Um, so, yeah. Well, you could go ahead on, Carla. Um, yeah, every time the border closes, I realize I have no weekend because <laughs> since I was small, I think I've almost spent the majority of my weekends on the front side. Um, not for any particular reason, I think, but um, yeah, that's just what's happened. And gosh, it's like, what do I do now that the border's closed? But um, <laughs> I think my fondest memory is probably right now, recently, uh, we have a family friend in Colombia and um, I go with my parents uh, to eat the wonderful food that he makes. I mean, food, food, food will be my reason for any fondest memory. But I mean, it, the fact of like saying, you know, we go by this family friend and we eat his amazing food and they talk about like all these old time stories. Uh, because they've all worked together. Um, it's a few of my parents' friends that come. But that could happen on any side of the island, right? It just so happens that he lives on the friend side, and, and that's the side of it. But I would, I would argue, you know, like, uh, if, if a situation like that were to happen on the Dutch side as well, would you necessarily see it as happening on that side, you know? Like, the institution itself, like, of us coming together is so St. Martin, uh, and it just so happens that his house happens to be on the friend side. So then my memory or fondest memory gets to be associated with that side. Um, but I think it's in those various things that we, we see, yeah, there is no side. Indeed. And um, uh, if anything, Carla, since I don't have a pass, uh, just put me in the back seat. <laughs> I don't have a pass either. Like I would. <laughs> Anybody listening? <laughs> Please. Well, for me, it would be... Um, going to Marigat on Saturdays with my father um, just to go for a stroll, especially buying shoes at Batak, I think it was called. Um, and with my mother to go and buy cloth and linen. And then, of course, I have friends over there. So even as recently, um, going to a good friend of mine, um, Tizan and, and, and others for, um, you know, just being able to share memories. I think my last one is uh, when me and Charity just got married, we went on a date on, at the marketplace early morning, you know, buy fish and tarts, and it was so amazing. So, so yeah, that would be my fondest memories going to the front side. So open the border, please. <laughs> but a hook or a crook. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least work on cooperation and on ways on doing things by, well, Act, well, operating without touching the border, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. operation is key. Okay, so we slightly run over, probably just by a minute, so um, I guess to sign off, um, each of you, you can, um, yeah, share your goodbye. I would just say that for me, it's, it's not a question of this closing of the border, but the recurrence of closing of the border that is the biggest issue. So mm -hmm. I hope you'll think on that. Yeah, I would say... Um, the border closure needs to be taken off the table as a negotiation tool. Um, I think that there are other more effective uh, methods of controlling the spread of the virus. 
um, that includes collaboration and cooperation between both sides. Um, and so the idea of, of closing the border shouldn't even be an idea um, because this is unprecedented um, and we need to stop acting as if it's not. So yeah, that's my closing. I think they already said it all. Open the border. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for thank you for coming to our TED talk. <laughs> yeah, my yeah my 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 final note would be a uh, an old Samadhan saying, which is pressure bus pipe. So open the border for space. <laughs> On that note, to all of our viewers and listeners, thank you so much for tuning. Um, yeah, we are going to brainstorm again. We get to another topic going on that we could discuss. We already threw something out there. Um, Calypso, maybe. Let's see. <laughs> thank you for tuning in to this episode of Melly. Have some comments? You can write to us at meleesxm at gmail.com or on Facebook and Instagram at meleesxm. See you for our next episode of Melee and in the